0: This is Passing for Normal, conversations with authors, artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the funniest book about love, sex, and GMO seeds you'll ever read. But mostly, it's about everyday courage and what it takes to get there. In your own personal, even unconventional way. So join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action while at the same time passing for normal.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Passing for Normal. Today, my guest is someone who really passes for normal John Weeks, Executive Director of the Academic Consortium for Complementary and Alternative Healthcare. John's mission and that of his organization is to integrate disciplines of complementary and alternative medicine into mainstream medical training, policy, and practice, no small feat. John has been a writer, organizer, executive, and consultant in the field of integrated healthcare for over two decades. Known himself as the Integrator, John has helped organize the most significant multidisciplinary collaborative forums among disciplines and stakeholders nationally and in Canada. He is the publisher and editor of the Integrator blog News and Reports, linking leaders of integrative healthcare organizations and business on key policy, economic, and academic issues, and writes many columns, research papers, and articles. He currently writes regular columns for the Pain Practitioner, Integrative Medicine, a clinician's journal, IntegrativePractitioner.com, the Consumer-Oriented Alternative Medicine, and for the Huffington Post. He is particularly proud of service as an outside consultant to the World Health Organization's 2014-2023 to Traditional Medicine CAM Strategic Plan. John has just received a Lifetime Achievement Living Tribute Award for his decades of work in integrated healthcare. He is one engaged, effective, and busy man. Welcome, John. Thank you very much, Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here uh, on the show with you. I'm so glad that you're here, and I am just so Uh, impressed, personally impressed with the work that you do and the work that your organization does. So, John, this show is about seeding change, and its title, Passing for Normal, also implies a stealth infiltration of new ideas into the mainstream. So you and your organization are doing both on a very large scale. Can you tell us what the mission of the Academic Consortium for Complementary and Alternative Healthcare is and what you're all about? Sure, sure.
2: I I would say to start with what I'm all about, I think cuts into truly the base of what we are all about with the consortium. I I got involved, it's actually now three decades ago, uh, not frankly out of a commitment to alternative or complementary medicine, but it was, I was offered the opportunity to look at a job in this field. And what I found while interviewing for it with the people at what was then the John Mastier College of Naturopathic Medicine in Seattle, which was 1983, was a value set that was very, very close to my own that I mm-hmm. had been practicing in as a journalist and in community organizing. They were talking about the importance of ref- of Respecting both halves of the brain, both the intuitive and the rationale, trying to figure out how to create medical education that that respected both the 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 hard to quantify aspects of the provider patient relationship and that was very interested in where the evidence that we found through research sits, that was deeply embedded in all of the ologies but also um, uh, Respects that the patient individuality and the individuality of the practitioner need to be shaping the the intervention. In, embedded also is this idea that you're in service to the healing process. So there's a kind of stewardship in relationship to nature. That's particularly true in, in naturopathic medicine. Um, uh, I I actually. Saw the set of values that these people were trying to bring forward in a field of health care and thought, huh, what would it be like if all of our doctors, nurses, practitioners were in service to these values? What kind of influence would that have on our culture if we allow ourselves to realize that these are, are in fact our medicine people? And the way we're taught by, by and with them to solve our problems effectively becomes the model for what we think about when we think about problem-solving anything else. So to answer your question more directly, what we try to do at a values level is seed the, what we call the values, practices, and disciplines associated with integrative health and medicine. But it's looking at whole systems. Uh, treating the whole person, mm-hmm. uh, having a health focus rather than a focus on reactivity, and being inclusive to diverse cultures, to diverse approaches, to diverse ways of thinking. So these are value sets we try to seed into uh, other dialogues. At the same time, we operate with a basic principle that uh, people's care will be better when they have access to more options. And ultimately, our bias is is that when you can use the least invasive things first, um, uh, we're all going to be better off. That that's a fundamental principle of, you know, primum non seri to do no harm. And unfortunately, in our regular care, that tends to jump first to drugs that often have adverse effects, and then Mm move to to cutting. uh, we, We we miss a lot of options. So' uh, There's a lot part of, of our options that, yes,
1: and oftentimes people reach for what they consider to be alternative health care after they've exhausted everything in uh in the major medical health care system right they've you know they've baffled their doctors or they're not. It's not being effective, and often that's when they turn to alternative care rather than looking at it as the least invasive option in the beginning, right. Exactly. There's a there's a, there's a biblical saying that the
2: the the first shall be last and the last shall be first, which actually captures in its way uh, what we're trying to to do here. We we believe. I mean, it begins actually with self care and a person's own choices about what they do with their lives and uh, the kind of daily choices that are made about. How they treat themselves, treat the people around them, the kind of exercise, the kind of eating um, that, that a person gets, and then you want to move to less invasive things. What we've seen over the last 20 years is more and more interest in what's been in integrating these uh, providers and we're seeing and, and practices. We're seeing uh, them showing up in a variety of. Uh, mainstream documents that are looking in the best care for back pain or the best care for pain of any kind, they'll be listed, Mm -hmm. but like you said, they tend to be listed and mentioned as, well, if regular things fail, you might try acupuncture, and um, we're very proud of a document we just published. Uh, Anybody can search it online. Search never only opioids. Uh, We We created it for a very large national organization, and it's a very, if you're talking about change, so this is actually sort of, this is a classic passing for normal story, Sharon. Um, Great. So we we have this bias in our group, which, which the core of it is acupuncture, the disciplines of acupuncture and oriental medicine, chiropractic, naturopathic medicine, massage therapy, direct entry midwifery, and we're also linked to the emerging fields in the U.S. of yoga, therapy, homeopathy, and Ayurvedic medicine. So we, we share some values around this idea of bringing less invasive things forward first. And we've wanted to publish on it, but wouldn't it be more useful for us to publish but to have a brand of a group of mainstream organizations? And so... As the end result, I mean, to this point, of six years of work in the, in various ways in the integrative pain field, and this story itself might be a fun one to get into more deeply, we mm-hmm. were able to suggest to this organization called PAIN, it's the PAIN uh, let me see if I can get Action Alliance, to implement the national strategy. Um, this has 40 major national pain-related organizations involved, after multiple years of involvement, we asked, "Well, can we create one of the poly- quarterly policy briefs on non-pharmaceutical approaches?" And they said yes. And mm-hmm. what we did is we wrote the thesis. It's called "Never Only Opioids: The Imperative for Early Use of Non-Pharmacological Approaches in the uh, Approaches and Practitioners in the Treatment of Patients with Pain." Um, oh,
1: so beautiful. It, so,
2: so it passes for normal in that it's being published by a bunch of mainstream organizations.
1: Yes. yes. And,
2: and I would say the other strategic piece here is that we forward and we knocked on the door early on and said you know, a lot of people use these kinds of providers for their pain conditions. We'd like to be involved with your work. Through that, we got someone onto their steering committee and we participated Just as regular members, when they called for suggestions about development of the website, we made some changes that they liked. We showed the evidence behind the changes we wanted. Uh, We had sent people to the national meeting, began developing broader relations, began to develop trust. And out of the trust, we got the yes on this uh, paper. And frankly, out of that trust, they let us take what is frankly a Quite radical position uh, for what is the common use of these therapies and providers. Um, so that's that's part of part of the this, this stealth behavior is a very simple thing. It's called human relationships.
1: Yes, human relationships, which is what you are all about. I mean, you are uh, you're a connector. You you personally you talk to people and you you communicate with people. You're a great communicator. You're a writer. You're an organizer, and I think that. I think that so much of the secret of your success and your organization's success is that you talk to people and you create dialogue.
2: Yes, I, I would say that that um, um, that um, I made I've made good use of my writing self in order to serve the organizing. Now, unlike. Um, you know, a lot of people will say that you have to keep a firm editorial line on your objectivity and your in your writing, where that of course objectivity is always in question in the blogging world that people throw the objectivity out the door. I've always realized that in 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 writing about a subject where people are trying to create um, make make change. They're working hard at it, and so I would interview somebody, but if I knew somebody else who was working on the same problem, I'd finish the interview or interrupt the interview and say, hey, you really ought to be in touch with so-and-so and help mm-hmm. you connect okay. them. And then mm-hmm. later on, we'd we'd convene a meeting where we'd bring a bunch of people together who were working on similar problem sets so they could then meet face-to-face. So I, I have, Sharon, used this. A mixture of my my writerly self and my organizing self I think um it's been a been a been a good tool for me,
1: yeah, I think it's worked well, and I want to mention that your organization is not large and you don't operate on a huge budget, and yet you are what I consider to be very effective in getting into these discussions and beginning to shape these discussions. How do
2: you do I, one, that? So the tool um, that I think is – the tool is about we, – we say that we, we practice collabor- collaboration internally in order to uh, foster it externally. Instead of working from a single guild's perspective, whether that be chiropractic or acupuncture, we realized early on that there would be force in numbers. And part of the reason we realized Senator Tom Harkin, who's been the strongest elected official supporting supporting this movement, suggested 20 years ago almost now to a group of us that that if you really want to be effective in Congress, why don't you figure out what your shared issues are and come together with them? and And that is a principle that we've followed. So by aggregating a... Uh, a set of now 17 national organizations representing all of the councils of colleges, accrediting agencies, agencies, certifying agencies, uh, for these organizations, um, we can knock on any door and not say, "Hey, we're acupuncturists." Let us in, but say, you know, uh, as I, our, our way of doing this is we, and when it's very important, is our board will pass a resolution charging me to call somebody up. So this the Institute of... It, it, it works because I will then bring that up. I will introduce myself as John Weeks. I'm an executive director of the Academic Consortium for Complementary and Alternative Healthcare. We are from five Department of Education recognized disciplines. And uh, together, we are connected to 375,000 licensed practitioners in the country. Mm. And we know that you're, like in one case, you're thinking about setting up a committee to set basically the direction for pain care research and education in the U.S., and we think we should be at that table. And Mm -hmm. an honest broker will listen to that and say, you're right. And at the Institute of Medicine National Academies, we have found truly honest brokers, really fine uh, public servants uh, who will listen uh, openly and honestly, and let us, uh, and and invite us in, and so that that's been a key key way that we've been able to impact is by first building our own house internally, so we kind of surprise them with with who we are when we knock on the door.
1: Yeah, it's so in a way that's sort of undeniable, right? You. Um you, you represent so many practitioners, and you're so well. Uh, it's been so well thought out what your
2: presentation I, I is. Sharon, the other, um, I, I thought about this as we were speaking just before that the interview began. Um, you know, the secret weapon really in so much of this is that a growing percentage of all of us are using some form of. uh, of health care that is not typically provided in a hospital or in a doctor visit, regular doctor visit, or in the health system. And so we encounter people right and left who who actually may not be representing the ideas that we have, but they they are actually agents for the change themselves. So we'll knock on the door and we'll find somebody who is saying, finally, at last, welcome in, you know. Yeah <laughs> <we> <laughs> waiting that... for you <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, the big turning point in this whole dialogue was in 1993, and before that, it was ugly. Uh, when I started the first decade, it was, you know, mm-hmm. if you mention naturopathic medicine in the media, you have to quote somebody saying they're quacks and frauds, and that was what was routine. But wow. when the report came out of David Eisenberg, who happened to be at Harvard, which put the right brand on this survey, and right. mm-hmm. found out that a third of adult Americans were using some form of unconventional medicine, as it was called then, and there was nearly $14 billion being spent out of pocket. At that point, not only did all of these major stakeholder groups say, Huh, maybe there are customers there, maybe there are potential. Yeah employees who would like these Mm -hmm. benefits. The media began to think, oh, a bunch of our readers actually like this stuff. Maybe we should treat it differently. Politicians started to think, oh, there are voters who like this stuff. In fact, a lot of single-issue voters who think this is about the most important thing in their lives. But the other thing that it did, which was uh, speak to the grassroots nature of this movement and this kind of secret weapon in all of our organizing work, is that people throughout all these stakeholder organizations, felt empowered. They could sit in their Mm -hmm. office Mm -hmm. and look around the room and go, well, if a third are using these things, then my quiet use of acupuncture that I never mentioned to anybody (laughs) is probably reflected in the practices of other people in the room here. And, right. and so people began to step forward empowered by that data. And then, then as the numbers grew, I mean, today I saw in a report that 80%, a full 80% of women with breast cancer will use some form of alternatives. And so mm-hmm. with frank with mm-hmm. conditions, the, the numbers that you see from studies, it's between 45 and, and 90% of people are are exploring non conventional things. So
1: right, and so it's it's certainly about time that policy, that insurance companies, that you know, that that they really be that these practices, these disciplines be accepted as what people are already doing. This is what people are already doing. The the other the other major help
2: for us right now, and I would say in the last, since the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare was passed. I, I tell people who are interested in these fields and disciplines that that if you whatever else you think about that plan, it actually empowered integrative thinking, integrative practice, and the complementary and alternative medicine fields in ways they've never have been before in federal policy, which is itself valuable to have for the first time kind of workforce thinking, thinking about this, some of the delivery thinking in medical homes. But the other thing that's I think even more important that's happening now, that's it's helping our organizing, is that the mess of US medicine uh, is has finally provoked policymakers and guiding the best uh, forces in regular medicine. To try to change what we what the, the language is ugly. It's called shifting our perverse incentives in the mainstream oh. industry. <laughs> and and let me explain this to you because it's simple thing. Is you if if, if the way your business model works is that you get you you want to do more because you get paid more. That's fee for service medicine, as it's called. Mm -hmm. Then if you're sitting there and you're a hospital chief financial officer and you're looking at your heart center, you make an estimation of how many coronary artery bypasses you're going to do in a year. And at the end of the year, it's, you know, you know, applause all around when you beat your numbers, when you had did more bypasses than you planned. Mm -hmm. Do you understand the perversity in that way of thinking? And it's true with knee replacements, hip replacements, use of drugs. All of it is incentivized in that system, in that way of working, uh, towards uh, what we say is is the very best human being in that system is somebody who's not quite dead. (laughs) Because they're hooked up to the most machines, the most drugs, and in the need of the most surgeries. There is a wonderful movement afoot with some very fine people in regular medicine to move that industry towards what's called a values-based system. And the very best are actually seeing out further and really realizing we need to move the whole thing towards a focus not on disease management, but on creating health in the populations that are served. And that's about moving all a lot of the energy, the economic energy, the human energy, the educational focus out of the tertiary care environment, which is where the most money is made, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. so the the perverse incentives actually helped us build all of those huge edifices that sit on our hills all over the country and take that energy and move it out into not only primary care, but into community medicine and then in areas I know you share and care about is realizing that the environment poverty, social justice issues, um, educational opportunities, access to quality food. All of these factors actually are major contributors to whether or not we have health in our communities. They're much bigger contributors than clinical medicine itself. The the funny, uh, and this is a this is really where we need to be going with this work. I frankly personally get frustrated working with practitioner groups knowing that the estimates are that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the contributions to whether or not a population is healthy can be uh, seen as being sourced in the clinical care they receive. The other factors are responsible for the other 80 to 90 percent. And what's wonderful, it's yes. beginning to happen, is that their their major leaders, Donald Berwick, who is head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service, is pushing this move towards salutogenesis, that we actually are looking at health and creation of health as our as our um uh, our goal. And so the the extent that we, again, going back to how we kind of stealth organize is we're always looking for what are the bridge abutments in regular and mainstream thinking that are linked yep. to our own value set. And as I began here describing these disciplines in one of our core focal areas is that we need to focus on health outcomes rather than managing disease. And here we are now, 30 years later for me, finally seeing resonance with that thinking inside of a lot of regular medicine. So knocking on the door and walking through the door, we not only are finding people who are more likely to have grown up with using nonconventional care, mm-hmm. people who are using it now, but they're also living in cultures that are beginning to say out loud what we need to be doing is creating health. That's where we need to be. And at that point, where we have much more access. Yes.
1: Yes, and I'm. My, if you were to see me, my head is nodding up and down going, yes, 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 yes. And, um, and your consortium is really leading the way in, uh, as you say, in a very grassroots way, looking for the doors that can open and walking through them, and walking through them. So, John, believe it or not, our time is almost over, and before we finish, I want you to be sure to let people know how they can find you, how they can find ACAC, and how they can get involved.
2: Okay, well thank you. Um yeah, it went fast and my my I apparently my wife is right that when she tells me that I can just go on and on. But um uh, so so the the newsletter I write is called The Integrator Blog and it's at theintegratorblog.com. It really targets kind of leaders in these fields. Uh but take a look if you want. The organization is ACAC, dot org, And um, we have another site that's at optimalintegration.org that you might want to check out. I'd like to mention what, where I am right now. It's, Please. Um, it's, a, it's an organization that I, I was asked to come on the board about nine months ago. I think it's going to be playing a very exciting place in some of this evolution. It's called the Academy of integrated health and medicine, there's a there's a consumer division we're uh, developing. A longtime colleague, Bradley Jacobs, a uh, medical doctor and master of public health, who is at UCSF, is going to be heading that up. Um, Where the the academy is actively engaging some of these dimensions uh, that I was just speaking to that are contributors mm-hmm. in health. It's global in its thinking. Its whole system and its thinking, and it distinguishes itself from any other medical organization, even in the integrative world, in the extent to which it's practicing what it's preaching. We're working mm-hmm. very hard cross culturally to bring together, uh, to reconcile, as one of the medical doctors here used that word, thinking of South Africa, but really we need reconciliation between the the externalized and put-upon disciplines and the dominant schools of, of medicine in order to create the teams to move this forward. So um, that is at AIHM.org. Um, so I, I invite you to go take a look there, too, and there it will be a place there, unlike at ACAC, that's much better fit for uh, a consumer's you know, if um, you want to, any of you want to know anything more about the work with ACAC, we are funded about fifteen or twenty percent internally, and the rest is actually is with philanthropic support. And so we're always that's looking right. for, for for community partners and ph- philanthropic investors. And so if you got any good ideas, I'm always hoping.
1: That's it. That's it. A very good investment indeed. Well, John Weeks, I thank you so much. You are so um, engaged and articulate and encouraging about uh, the picture of our health care in this country. You know, it sometimes can feel so overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly messed up, (laughs) uh, depending upon Mm -hmm. what, what places you enter into the health care system and what your needs are at the moment. Um, but you are uh, doing such wonderful work out there and uh, and helping us all to uh, have more awareness of what we can do as well. So I thank you very much for being on Passing for Normal, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you, Sharon. It's been a pleasure being here. You know, I've shared
2: with you before that my motto comes from Baclav Havel, who says that hope is not the same thing as optimism, you know. Um, hope is not doing something because you believe good will necessarily come of it because in this world working with the medical system it is it's hard to be hopeful a lot of the time but he says hope actually is doing something because you know it's the right thing to do and what I take from that is that hope is hope is actually a verb and and that when we're engaged in seeking to make change then we can have hope that change is possible it's when we let go of engagement that pessimism is likely to drop in on us. So thanks, Sharon.
1: Oh, thank you so much, John. Bye. Okay. Okay,
0: bye. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to PassingForNormal.com. That's passing PassingNumeral4Normal.com. Her novel Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the funniest book about love, sex and GMOs you'll ever read, is available in paperback, Kindle and now as an audiobook wherever good books are sold and at donnieandursula.com. So go out and do something brave today. M Earth and I, thank you.